Hello world and happy new year. Welcome to the Political Worldview podcast, January 11th, 2018, the Who Gets a Pass for War Crimes edition. I'm Adam Quinn, Senior Lecturer in International Politics at the Political Science and International Studies Department at the University of Birmingham in England. I'm joined, we've got the band back together, by my usual pair of co-hosts, Kristalia Kinthu, a Birmingham Research Fellow who is uh, ensconced in the corner with several layers of it's protective cold. warmth that it's may well It's cold may here, well people. You. You, What's wrong? with you. You'll warm up due to the uh, intensity and quality of the opinion experience. I hope so. I hope so. But happy 2018. I hope it's been treating you well so far. Back it, back from the colonies, right? It's true. I am back from the colonies with a little thing called the ashes uh, to keep me warm. <laughs> okay. Still, those ashes are still radiating heat <laughs> after all. All after clearly all not years. enough, are they? If I'm if I'm in multiple layers in in my scarf that. Um, that takes up half the room. Cold, Otherwise, I'm well. Yeah, cold cricketing comfort. Mm. Um, and Scott Lucas, a professor of international politics and editor of news and commentary site EA Worldview, who is hobbled by jet lag and riddled with every virulent disease contractable via transatlantic plane travel, but still, uh, still girding up uh, and coming to attend this uh, this session of the recording, at least for the first item. How are you doing, Scott? Is, doing, the, answer, is the answer terrible? Yeah, pretty much. So. I'll pretend it's okay. But when I drop out of this halfway through, you know why, all right? Yeah, but it gives you that kind of gravelly quality to your voice. I always like to think that those who are listening to podcasts can like subtly monitor the health of those who are attending as their voice like comes and goes with various various atmospheric and uh, and internal challenges. Anyway, it's great to be back. New year, uh, same high quality analysis, chatter and occasionally contention. Um, The easy option this week, of course, would have been to take another tour in Trump world, but we'll we'll hold off on that for That's not going going anywhere. Our two topics this week. First, as one of the bloodiest civil conflicts of modern times grinds on in Syria, is any end in sight? And what might that end conceivably look like? Second, people in high places in both Guatemala and Kosovo could not seem less enthusiastic about the prospect of punishing war crimes dating to their respective past civil wars. Is it possible to give justice decades after the fact to those wronged in such cases? And what would that look like? So our own Scott Lucas, in a piece written for the Conversation website this week, said the following. The Syrian conflict is close to its eighth year. Some commentators, and indeed governments and leaders, have tried to close it off with proclamations of the defeat of the Islamic State. Others have made the simplistic judgment call that the Assad regime is nearing triumph. They are wrong. If the world's attention has turned away from the hundreds of thousands dead and millions bombed, displaced and starved under siege, it's not because of a resolution. Instead, it is because, in place of resolution, there is not one Syria, but several, a fragmented country. So, the Syrian civil war is uh, now in that category of conflict that's been going on for so long, so bloodily, and without sign of decisive result, that most of us lucky enough to have the option to do so have begun to tune out the grim flow of news. Hundreds of thousands have died, millions have been displaced, and the control of the country is divided between the authoritarian Ba'athist government of Bashar al-Assad, held in place by heavy military support from Russia and Iran, and a patchwork quilt of enclaves controlled by opponents, including militant Islamists of various stripes and 
Kurds. With no decisive conclusion to the fighting in sight and with major barriers, interest, principle and practicality blocking the path to a negotiated solution, will Syria ever escape the hell into which it began its descent nearly a decade ago? Scott, um, in that paragraph with which I opened... um, you seem to be pointing us in a pessimistic direction about the current state of Syria. Before we get into deconstructing that pessimism and whether there's any way back out of it, uh, maybe you could just expand a little on uh, a little on what you were saying in this piece to give our, our listeners the Cliff Notes version of where Syria is right now. Because if, if, if our listeners are anything like me, they will have been aware for some time there's a god-awful civil war happening in Syria. They know it's a mess. They know there are lots of outside players, uh, but they probably don't know, like, where are we with that now um what's what's the latest i i I think the starting point for why i wrote it is because there's sort of a simple overlay which is that winning losing overlay and after for so long saying oh the opposition is going to defeat assad we swung swung back in the last two years to assad is winning you know that simple vision and so you get this impression from that that oh if he wins that means syria is back under the rule of this regime um even if we don't like it that's the way it is and just covering day to day, I just know that's not true. In that uh, Assad, even if you take away the fact that he's propped up by the outside forces, and he would have been gone long before now had it not been for the Russian. Right, he was on the precipice yeah. of falling before the Iranians stepped in. Then they kind of got tired, and the Russians stepped in yeah. in turn. So it's taken it's taken the full commitment of two a whole other countries to keep him in place, but keep him in place they have. Yeah, they have. But so even if you try to put that to the side. You know, he still doesn't have control of the entire country. There's still a large section of it, especially up in the northwest and in parts of the south, which is opposition-controlled. Now, opposition is a very loose term. Uh, it means right. There's a lot of people. There's right? a lot of different factions. The ones that tend to get the headline are the hardline Islamists called uh, Hayat Tahrir al-Sham, but they're the ones that formerly had pledged allegiance to al-Qaeda. But... In fact, they just simply are one of a number of groups, uh, others who are secular, others who are religious, others who are supported by the Turks or by the Saudis. And so you can't say there's one opposition. And then, just to add in the mix, what a lot of people don't realize is that the Kurds who have seized this opportunity really have the opportunity to say, we have an autonomous area hmm. up in the north and in the east of Syria, uh, you know, a Syrian Kurdistan. Yeah. The, the, the Kurds are uh, an ethnic group who uh, have never had a state of their own, but they're no. split between four countries, most famously Iraq, where they do have their own enclave, um, also uh, also Iran and Turkey. But within Syria, they have the sort of the, the, the next best chance to carve out something like what they have in Iraq with, with an eye on maybe a, a Kurdish state in the future. Right? Yeah. And so if you take that standpoint, if you take just a, and the Islamic State pretty much is, is off to the side now. They don't control any significant territory. So if you take the remaining three actors, the question is, do we actually get to a point where one of the three, and the logic here is the Assad regime, reimposes control, Mm. or whether we're really saying, look, there's a de facto partition which is going on here. And there's not a clean answer to that, because the Assad regime has declared that before they enter any political negotiations, and Russia's making a big deal about the political process. Saddam regime has said, look, we don't care what you say about this until we defeat the terrorist, mm-hmm. which means opposition groups. We're not going to seriously talk. Now, does Russia allow that to happen so their mm-hmm. political process is set aside for ongoing conflict? Do the Iranians support Assad? What do outside actors 
not as much the Americans for reasons I explained in the piece. They're off to the side. But say, for example, the Turks, who are much more maneuvering between the opposition and the regime, do they accept Assad trying to do this? And what you really are getting is the answer is that this is going to be a protracted conflict, Hmm. that there will be no quick political resolution. And you're going to just see this grinding series of military conflicts in which civilians take the brunt of this. Um, so I mean, trying try to compartmentalize this into yeah. um, like the parameters of like what's possible and what might be negotiated versus what is uh, what is just closed off as a realistic possibility. I read what you're saying to be that a military solution, a, a solution whereby either by military means the Assad government is toppled and replaced by somebody else who controls the country. Or a military solution where Assad just, uh, you know, liquidates enough people that essentially all political will to resist breaks down and the country comes back under government control. Both of those are fantastical possibilities that that aren't going to happen in your reading. I I think there is a possibility. I I don't think it's a near-term possibility, but I think it's a possibility that if the Assad regime presses hard enough and kind of continues to press Russia to accept... um, a military push, they could wear the opposition areas down, probably over the course of many months or even years. Uh, I think it's trickier with the Kurds uh, because the Kurds, of course, have the backing of the U.S. at this point, um, and I, I'm not sure that they that for political reasons the Assad regime or that Russia would allow the Assad regime to overrun that area. Mm-hmm. I think that's possible, but I think it would be a very grinding conflict in terms of what I think is possible, but perhaps utopian is you almost try to freeze this conflict between those three groups um, in which you say, look, we're going to draw the lines between these areas that they each control, and we'll go to political talks on this basis. Mm -hmm. Now, Russia has made a pretense of doing this. Russia has declared de-escalation zones throughout the country. Uh, But, in fact... The is Russia, that like a less ambitious version of no fire zones, or a- it, it? It almost is in a sense in that way that the Russians have been have played the propaganda hand so skillfully, is that they took the notion of a protected zone or a no fly zone, which of course I've advocated for years, but they've turned it into this propaganda device, which says we're the ones that are leading, providing for de escalation, when in fact they still are supporting the Assad regime's military action. Mm-hmm on the fringes of these zones. So yeah. even as we speak, they're still bombing, they're still carrying out sieges. Well, that's the thing. Like, I mean, it's in the nature of these situations that as soon as someone has the advantage, like they immediately become, they, they, they immediately flip on all sorts of issues about where they should and shouldn't be fighting. You become in favor of ceasefires and the bits you control. You become opposed to ceasefires and the bits where you're making advances and, you know, the, and the other way around with your opponents. So it's, uh, there's often a, a huge amount of cynicism in who is calling for ceasefires, where and when at any given time, right? I think there's a, there's a bit of a level beyond this, which is interesting, which is that the Russians, I don't think, like Bashar al-Assad. They certainly don't believe he's a very secure leader. Well, he's caused them a lot of trouble. Yeah. Like they have rinsed through a lot of money and a lot of logistical lifting, yeah. and they've taken a huge amount of international heat, yeah. and I, basically I, to keep him in power. And he doesn't seem super grateful, uh, or like uh, um, he, he's not behaving like someone who rises and sleeps under the under the protection that Russia provides, and therefore has to bow down before them. Because he kind of knows, it seems, that they, or at least he seems to work on the assumption they don't have a lot of alternatives. Yeah. So although they're 
they're protecting his survival. They're doing it in the to serve their own interests, and he doesn't have to behave as though this is a favor they've done. It. No, it's interesting. I mean, this is why Assad's not a puppet. He's propped up by the Iranians, Hezbollah and Russia. But he's not a puppet of them, you know. And so he's got this leverage, as you've expressed it, which is, well, if I'm not here, what do you, you know? Mm. Who's your alternative in place? It reminds me a little bit of the relationship the Americans have had for a long time with the government of Afghanistan, which is to say it can't survive without them, but like it's the only really old, real alternative they have. So you know it acts out and uh, you know doesn't obey them in all sorts of ways because what are they going to do? Exactly, with the difference that Assad and his inner circle are much more bloodthirsty than any of the governments the Americans have propped up in Afghanistan. I mean, mm. it, the, the fact of the matter is, is that. This regime, and I, I need to make this clear because there's a lot of disinformation propaganda out there, this regime will stop at nothing to try to roll back these areas. They will use chemical weapons unless you firmly tell them no and threaten retaliation if they do. Mm-hmm. Uh, they are, not just will, they are carrying out and tightening sieges mm-hmm. in the sense of denying people medical care, in the sense of effectively starving them to death. Mm-hmm. And the Russians, I think, realize it's bad optics. It's bad optics to be seen on the side of doing this, but at some point they have to make the choice, which is do, do we stay alongside Assad if he keeps pressing this, or do we step back from him and possibly see him fall or, you know, or, or, or see some type of basically unacceptable alternative come forward to him? And I mean, to underline, to underline your point about the level of destruction caused, you know, if you go on the internet, for example, there have been videos produced, I think, via drones flying over um, over the relevant locations where you can see what until eight years ago were highly developed, uh, peaceful, modern cityscapes that now look like, uh, you know, something out of Berlin in late 1945, like absolute carnage and destruction, buildings, abandoned buildings with lumps taken out of them, rubble in the streets, uh, you know, large tracts of urban space, totally abandoned, etc. Which means that the level of civilian suffering has been so horrendous in this case that someone with a solely humanitarian concern might take a look at it and go, well, look, nothing's worth this price. So clearly, whoever ends up being in charge on whatever terms, like what's absolutely required as number one priority here is a negotiated settlement that stops so much, so much violence that, that that's taking the toll on, on civilians. But presumably... Yeah. In the opposition side, as well as on the government side, there are people who who don't agree with that. They say some things are worth fighting for, even if this is the price, we've got to keep going. Well, I think the opposition is just trying to hang on right now in the areas it controls. Uh, I think the regime doesn't give a damn how much damage it causes. I mean, just a couple of of quick facts, and then I think a couple of very serious implications that we can talk through. One is, I mean, 25% of the population, more than 5 million people uh, who are refugees outside the country, in total more than half the population displaced, either as refugees or internally, mm-hmm. you know, and, and calculate the equivalent if it happened in Britain, for example. 75% of GDP lost uh, and not going to be recovered in the near future. Uh, the large share of oil and gas fields outside the control of the regime. Now, there's two things I think this means. One is, uh, down the road, I don't think Assad can stay in power. I, I don't think you can keep someone who many Syrians will consider as being responsible for this level of destruction hmm. in power. Now, whether he's allowed to exit gracefully, which I think is what even his supporters like the Russians will try to aim for, you know, for the immediate future, it's like you've got this stalemate. This guy just cannot carry the legitimacy, hmm. even if you try to, to, to maintain that he is, quote, the leader. But secondly, and in the short term, who's going to provide reconstruction? 
you know, even if Assad was to take control of the entire country, or let's just say holds most of it, who's going to provide this reconstruction system? The Russians have got a very fragile economy. They've poured a lot of money in. They mm-hmm. cannot pour in the billions that are needed for reconstruction. The Iranians have got their own economic issues. Uh, both the Russians and the Iranians are going to try to exploit and take resources out of Syria. But to put the money in for reconstruction, I don't know. So the Russians and the Iranians, or at least the Russians, will go to the international community and say, you provide the reconstruction aid. Yeah, like if, if, if you were Barack Obama, like what you would say about the situation, because he took a huge amount of heat for not inserting America into this situation to be a kind of belligerent in the same way as, as, as Russia is to, to prop up pro-American forces, etc. And the criticism that was leveled at him is, look at how ruthless and effective Vladimir Putin is. He has an objective here. He has, uh, he has sent in troops. He has deployed resources. He has turned the tide of this war. And as a consequence, like he's strong and successful and you are weak and failed. Barack Obama's counter-analysis is, well, look, at the beginning of this whole thing, uh, Syria was a Russian client state, more or less, like Bashar al-Assad is their, one of their very small number of allies. And all they have accomplished at the end of this, having invested an enormous amount of resource and risk and cost and money, uh, is to be propping up a radically weakened client who doesn't control his whole country anymore and never will, and his whole country is in ruins, etc. So, like, sure, compared to completely losing Syria to a pro-American leader, Russia's achieved a success here, but basically they're net down on big, uh, in, in a big way on this deal. And, you know, we may, like, maybe we are setting the bar for Russian success uh, at the wrong time or at the wrong level uh, if, if we read it in, in, in this way. Yeah. <clears throat> I think, first of all, I can't let the Obama thing pass without saying that from that standpoint, you see a logic in Obama's position, but you know that I'm still bitter about what the Americans did mm-hmm. under Obama because... And should, a lot of Americans would share your position. Yeah, they yeah, believe that if America had intervened on the side of the relevant actors earlier and more effectively, they could have foreshortened this war or at least had better actors prosper no, within it. But not intervening as belligerent. I mean, I, I, what I always say is that not just the Americans, the international community, intervening as a protector right for those areas that the opposition held which is to make sure they couldn't bomb and besiege those millions of people but by the by on that in terms of the russians um i've always thought that that putin was a a very good tactician but is suspect as a strategist so we can see the fact that the russians having put so much resource in have just declared they are going to have a permanent military base in syria Mm -hmm. we know that the russians are looking at probably trying to get a share of the energy sector in Syria uh, if the regime can retake oil and gas fields, including from the Kurds. But strategically, uh, you've got what is effectively a, a state on life support or at least you know, a Syrian country mm. on life support. And I'm not sure that Putin has gamed that out in terms of how much the Russians mm. will be drawn in so I'm not thinking of a quagmire. Yeah, but, but like, I mean, I mean, you could say, you know, if, if the threshold for success is that you have a friendly gov- friendly-ish government in the capital that with your enormous investment of resource can just about be propped up, then America in Iraq was a success. Yeah. Uh, but I don't think most of us think of it that way. Uh, likewise, the Russians seem to be the... Um, you know, the, the, the majority shareholders in a total catastrophe here. It's well, I, I think, viewed from a certain perspective. I agree with that, but I also think there's also an important difference we made here, which is uh, that whereas for Russia, I'm thinking, what have they gotten themselves into? I think the Iranians, it's different. And with the Iranians, 
Syria has that immediate regional hmm. interest in terms of this is their area of influence. This is their connector to Lebanon. Uh, had Assad gone, they would have felt that they were, if not surrounded, encroached upon by hostile powers. So I think the Iranians, in their own economic investment of billions into Syria, they'll get payback for this. Yeah. They've got an immediate interest that's served. I don't see the Russians actually getting that type of, mm. of vital interest secured in the same way. Although on Iran, I mean, and I know you uh, take a very close interest in Iran, so mm. we'll probably do this as a whole item uh, somewhere later on down the line. It's been an interesting facet of, uh, there's a lot of protests going on in Iran at the moment, a lot of domestic discontent. One of the sources of that seems to be the revelation of what the national budget looks like, and one of the most controversial bits of that seems to be this huge discretionary fund that the Iranian Revolutionary Guard had for things like their operation in, in Syria, which, given the economic constraints under which uh, Iran, Iran is operating right now, um, looks like a huge amount of money to most Iranians that they've spent on this, too. So again, like with the Russians, um, you may get to more or less where you want to be at the end of the day-ish, but the cost is, is very substantial. For what it it is, but I think there's an interesting, an interesting split in terms of Iranian opinion. And our answers. See, for the Revolutionary Guards, what they're doing is they're going into Syria and they're laying claim to the phosphate mines, for example. They also are laying claims to oil and gas fields. They have taken over an entire section of southern Damascus, uh, rebuilt the area. So they're going to try to, to pull money in off of basically control of property and securing a lifeline between Assad's position and the military bases uh, just outside the capital. But someone like President Rouhani, who sees not how much money or how much we can take out of Syria, but sees the draining effect upon the Iranian economy when he's trying basically to pursue a recovery that is very questionable at this mm -hmm. point. I, yeah, I think it raises that question of whether Iran, again, I think is, secures a short-term interest, but yeah. down the road gives itself basically a, an additional burden. Right, because it's not like it's not a defining characteristic of either Iran or Russia at 2017 that they're like these hugely prosperous countries with enormous infinite res reservoirs of cash they can afford to be throwing around on stuff like this. It shows just how important, I guess, keeping Assad in power somehow, some way, must have been that they've that they've uh, incurred such costs. It does, and there's sort of there's also. An illusory benefit, but a very important illusory benefit. And that is, you will notice in a lot of media that they will talk about how Iran has gained in power and Iran is now the, you know, the rising regional power. And every time I read that, I go, you guys really aren't reading you know, the economic lines here because Iran uh, does not have basically that secure power in terms of a stability of resources, a stability of investment. But because Iran can give the illusion of being the expanded power, that still matters for something in international relations. You know, when the emperor's new clothes become exposed, mm -hmm. then they're going to face a reckoning, whether it happens in international terms or whether it happens because of a surge of protest inside the country. Okay, last question then. So, like, the international community's, um, like, solution in a box uh, for these kinds of situations is to convene a big summit, bring all the stakeholders together. They talk and talk for a while. They agree the war needs to stop. They, they come up with some kind of outline of a new political settlement. Everybody um, stands in front of the microphones and calls it a great success. Like... This doesn't seem like a situation that's anywhere near that being a realistic hope, but I'm pretty sure if you, you, know, if, if you asked a lot of outsiders what they want to see, they would say they want to see something like that. 
is that a pipe dream for the foreseeable future, or is it like is it a sensible position to have about this solution that it needs, or this uh, this conflict that it needs, quote unquote, a negotiated solution soon? Yeah. I mean, it's an ideal position uh, to get the international community to come in, and as I said, you're not going to get a an, you know an immediate sol- overall solution, but at least to get freezing this in place where we can talk further but there's two reasons why it won't happen i mean the first is that the assad regime has no interest in this because we've had this process the un has had the latest uh, set of geneva talks has now been going on for a couple of years and the regime has flat out said at the last uh, gathering in december no we, we're not going to discuss the constitution we're not going to discuss elections we're not going to discuss an end to sieges well, that's like all the things. Yeah, it? exactly. That's, that's, that's it, like saying, you know, we, we'll, we'll happily attend yeah. a meeting where everybody unilaterally yeah. surrenders to us. The, well, which is what they did. The only thing they'll discuss, the only agenda item they'll discuss is, quote, fighting terrorism, which, of course, is their euphemism for kicking hell out of the opposition. Right. So uh, that's the first reason it's not going to happen. The second is, is that the Russians have hijacked the process. And what the Russians have done is they're trying to convene their own talks in southern Russia for a so-called national congress. Now, that in itself is an effort which is fraught with difficulties. For example, uh, the Russians wanted to invite the leading Kurdish group, mm-hmm. uh, the Kurdistan Democratic Union Party, but Turkey considers that party to be affiliated with the Turkish Kurdish insurgency. Mm-hmm. So the Turks, therefore, say, no, these folks can't be present. Mm-hmm. I won't go into detail as to why this conference may not occur in southern Russia. Mm-hmm. What I'm saying here is is that the idea of the international community being in charge of this, the Russians are pretty much precluding it. And the question, therefore, is not what happens between the international community and the Assad regime. It's what happens between the Assad regime and the Russians that determine the next phase of this conflict. This, I feel like I'm living in a little bit of a parallel reality, though, because over the last few months what I've seen, especially from the border countries to Syria, is a lot more talk uh, calling for from this international community, and and that's quote, uh, within quotes, asking for, talking about reconstruction funds, not asking for, but talking about preparing civil society, preparing, and, and Lebanon, it's huge. Like, the they are amassing on the borders, they are building ports in preparation for this day when reconstruction begins. And so I kind of feel like there's, there's the... There's the dialogue that we've had now and there's also a whole bunch of stuff that's happening on the ground to use that term that doesn't entirely match up to that so what's going on why are, why are we building ports in Lebanon why are we talking why are people talking about uh, reconstruction bids and why are companies in border countries gearing up for that there's two two elements to this the first is is that where a country like lebanon or like jordan or even like turkey is yeah. right now is to get as much in terms of funding support for the refugees yeah. that they host and we know that's going on for a few years now it's the not I- exactly the same thing though. no exactly so now we move on to the second part yeah. of that which is you're saying okay so we're going to be able to get reconstruction in syria these people can be able to move back and then we're going to profit yeah because we're going to help rebuild the country the way that the gulf states help rebuild lebanon yeah after the uh, Lebanese Civil War. The problem here is Assad, and that is to pour in those reconstruction funds, billions of reconstruction funds, and to allow him and his family, because it's a really small ruling elite in Syria, Mm. to continue to control a lot of this, 
after all they've done to damage the country in the first place, I don't think a lot of people are going to wear it. So we get back to the point is, can you find a solution where Assad himself steps aside? Yeah, goes and does an Idi Amin, go and swim by a swimming pool somewhere uh, else for 20 years until you die while the country builds up after you've gone. But but you keep the rest of the regime in place, and then you get the reconstruction in there. And that's what they're all trying to gamble on. Yeah. But the Russians have got to make the decision that they're going to push him out, to push him to the side. And right now, they're sort of in a damned if they do and damned if they don't position uh, because Assad is just digging his heels in and sort of pulling Moscow along with him, at least for the near future. Hmm. Now it's time for Number of the Week, where we uh, do a quick round of numbers linked to news stories and a little bit of chatter attached there too. Scott, what have you got for us today? Uh, My number today is 15, um, referring back to... uh, a matter that you sort of praised in our first item on Syria, which is this is the 15th day of protest across Iran, or shall we say an escalation of protest across Iran over economic and over political issues as well. Uh, now, those protests have been going on actually relatively unnoticed for many months, uh, but there was a surge in them from December 28th, and sort of surprisingly, at least surprising the regime, uh, then they just spread really, really quickly. And what was interesting about these protests, for those who remember 2009 after the uh, mass marches after the disputed presidential election, is it wasn't like there's a clear single group, as it were, what was called the North Tehran effect, which is relatively middle-class, well-off people who were demanding legitimacy from the regime. We've seen a lot of working-class people, a lot of unemployed folks. A lot we, younger as well, lot, I gather, is the, yeah. is the profile of the protesters. Yeah, a lot of young people, people. who wouldn't necessarily have been old enough to be involved back in 2009. Absolutely right, because that younger generation is facing unemployment of up to 40%. Right? And so all of a sudden, these economic problems that Iran has had, but which the Iranian regime doesn't admit to, and which the international community sort of didn't notice, they just surged to the fore. What is interesting beyond that, however is that while the regime will now acknowledge that they had protests over economic issues, although they say, uh, but there were rioters who hijacked the protest because they were foreign-supported, yada, 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 yada. What's interesting is, is that the demonstrators very quickly picked up political slogans. And so we did have, for example, the chance of death to the dictator, which is, in effect, a challenge to the supreme leader. Uh, we did see, in certain places, his poster being burned. Uh, am I saying that there is going to be... Uh, you know, a revolution almost 40 years after the Islamic revolution that gets rid of that system. No, I'm not saying that. But I do think that we are looking at a, an ongoing process where the country we think of as the Islamic Republic uh, is going to go through a great deal of change. And which faction is in control at the end of it and whether we see a repressive regime or one that is more open in terms of political and cultural space uh, – that is an open question, which is far more important to me than the ongoing chitter-chatter about the state of the nuclear deal. Krista, la, yes. la, 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 la. Yes. Did you bring uh, a number with you this week? And if so, what is it? I, in fact, am riffing off Scott uh, today. My number of the week is four, which is the number of days that of ongoing protests in Tunisia. 
Um, or Tunisia for or our Tunisia. Uh, insistently English uh, it's listeners. It's true. Um, I, on the other hand, will choose to call it Tunisia. Yeah, exactly. Well, you and most of the English-speaking world, it's so we're, we're a little particular. So in Tunisia, Tunisia, 300-plus people uh, have been arrested over the last four days and one person has been killed in ongoing protests against the government's um, decision early this week to raise taxes on basic goods and uh, increase the cost of those basic goods. And basically, the the entire protest is kind of coming off the back of uh, increasing unemployment, especially youth unemployment, uh, crackdowns by the police again, so issues around police brutality, lack of uh, employment and kind of economic mm. possibilities for people, So, which, which really, really rides off the themes of the revolution. Um, so the protests also kind of... Uh, mark what is it now 2010 eight years since the beginning of the Tunisian revolution and kind of a, a reflective of of how tough this context is and how tough it is to kind of provide basic needs for people in a context where there are no more jobs and where the political elite is still struggling with corruption and some of the old guard are still there People in the margins are still marginalised. People are still unhappy. So the protests have kind of sparked something that has existed in Tunisia for a long time post-revolution and people aren't quite sure where to go or what, what mm. to do about it from here. And Tunisia, uh, to the extent that the Arab Spring had any success stories yeah. when all was said it's and done, it's, it, it, it's the, the one the that people are still holding on to as things are at least better than they were. So people, a lot of outsiders would be loath to see it descend into anything resembling full-scale disorder. I think um, a, lot of an, a lot of outsiders hang on to it as the jewel of, of the Arab uprisings, you're right. Um, and we do, outside of Tunisia, tend to look at the revolution and the democratisation process with this kind of rosy-tinted lens, rose-tinted lens. What I think it shows is just how tough it is, even under the... They were not ideal, but the most ideal of, of circumstances in that set of, of MENA countries that that fought for democracy um, mm. between 2010 and to that, well, until now. Mm. So it's a that, long that would be a uh, MENA Middle East North Africa, not MENA as in this is a mean country. We don't want to insult the Tunisians Mina. with uh, any any, uh, any uh, hom- homophone uh, <laughs> perceived insults. The problem continues to be with the Australian accent. I think MENA MENA. <laughs> <laughs> um, yes, with the Middle East and North African countries. So I think that what it reminds us is that th- these processes are slow and painful and that there's a whole bunch of backsliding that happens behind the scenes that the international community particularly doesn't want to look at because it's put a lot of money into. So if people are on the streets eight years after the revolution um, asking for dignity and unemployment is still increasing, then things are not looking great.
In the early 1980s, in the small Central American state of Guatemala, two decades at that point into a 30-year civil war, the military government waged a brutal campaign against the populations of the Maya highlands, suspected of harboring leftist guerrillas. An estimated 7,000 people died in the region, including many children, as government forces dispensed violence with impunity. Many killed directly, others dying as a result of the terrible conditions endured once chased from their homes. This was one of the bloodiest phases of a war that ultimately saw 45,000 people vanish, only 6,000 of whose remains have ever been located since. The military leader of the time, Efren Rios Montt, was convicted of genocide in 2013, but this was almost immediately overturned on a technicality. A new trial is currently underway, racing against time to convict the sick 91-year-old general while he's still on earth to be judged. Meanwhile, all the way over in Kosovo, which won its independence from the rump state of Yugoslavia in a civil war in 1998-99, a special court appears poised to issue indictments against former pro-independence fighters for a campaign of violence committed against ethnic Serbs and other opponents during and after that war. The majority ethnic Albanian population of Kosovo tends to remember that conflict as one in which they were the oppressed minority suffering violence at the hands of Serbs, and the country's political leaders mostly have their roots in the Kosovo Liberation Army. None are therefore enthusiastic about the prospect of trials and convictions for former Kosovar fighters, and there's been increasingly serious talk of the government revoking the legal mandate of the special court that's preparing those indictments. So both of these cases... Um, highlight a vexed question of politics, uh, not just today, but in the past and no doubt in the future too, which is can those um, who committed atrocities in conflicts past be held accountable when today's rulers in the same place are sympathetic to and perhaps were even complicit in the cause in service of which uh, they committed their crimes? Also, what hope is there that those wronged, be they survivors or descendants, might receive some measure of justice? And what does that mean for societies keener to keep the peace and move on rather than reopen old wounds? So, Kristala, you are one of our resident experts in how people attempt to bring about and maintain Settle new political settlements after um, periods of, of civil violence, etc. And this goes to the heart of one of the biggest questions that, that, that hovers unhelpfully around um, uh, those settlements once they've been constructed. Uh, what's, your, uh, what's your immediate read on these cases? Is, are the, is this a, a fairly typical uh, example of the, the kinds of problems that rear their head in post-conflict societies? Yeah, I think that both cases, both Guatemala and uh, Kosovo in different ways remind us how hard it is for criminal justice efforts to actually achieve their goals over time. And they remind us, both of those cases, I think, remind us that the work is slow and hard and deeply, deeply divisive. And you see that in the overturned ruling um, and the retrial of, of Rios Mont, but you also and especially see the idea that justice or criminal prosecutions programs is really de- de- divisive in Kosovo with the with the efforts this week of parliamentarians to overturn um, that tribunal so all the legislation in which the tribunal rests so they're opposite for me in the way that Kosovo has had a kind of head in the sand approach to dealing with its past over the last couple of decades um, but Guatemala Began confronting its past 
almost head on very, very quickly. And yet they're both in pretty unhappy situations, right? Mm. Both fragile, both dealing with the broader questions of, of, uh, like you point up, what point out, what not just what does justice mean, what does justice mean to families and victims and survivors, but also what does justice, what does criminal prosecution Mm. mean for the stability of a state. So um, the Guatemala case, the, the violence is a little bit longer ago. Yeah. I imagine the politics and personnel have moved on somewhat more than in the Kosovo case. What is the position of those who currently prevail in Guatemalan politics to the period of time in which this uh, happened and, and those who were in charge then? Are, the, are those who were in charge the political descendants of the forces that carried out this violence? Are they the political descendants of those who were on the wrong end of it? Or are they just a, a whole new group of people who don't have any particular investment in, in what it, went on in the 80s? I think, I think something interesting happens in contexts like post-conflict contexts like Guatemala. And that's not just that the descendants of those who uh, who were implicit in the in keeping the authoritarian regime then in place are still there now, which is the case, but that there's this culture of impunity that spreads through a country when its past is not addressed. And that's what we're seeing in Guatemala. So the case, the Rios Mont reopening the genocide case, um, comes at a critical moment because Guatemala's democratization process, accountability, institutional reform was pretty hard fought over those first two or so decades after the conflict. And there was a lot of typical for post-conflict context. Mm. There was a lot of backsliding, right? The war war ended officially in 96, right? Yeah. So, but, but there was an interesting peace process that happened and there was a lot of civil society involvement. There are a lot of human rights watchdogs and there was a fair amount of um, international support to be led by Guatemalan actors reforming the system. But what's interesting now is that there has been so much backsliding in terms of institutional reform and in prosecution, so overturning of key human rights cases, that questions around whether you can still commit atrocities in Guatemala haven't been, well, they have been resolved. The answer is yes, you you can still do this. Mm. Um, So Guatemala now is is, um, really struggling with questions around corruption and impunity from the top all the way down. And so cases like this affect um, the way that the general public kind of sees and feels what it is to be Guatemalan today and living and dealing with all of the problems of, 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 a, of a post-conflict state and all of the kind of uh, complexities that are infused in that. So, I mean, one of the reasons why uh, a degree of impunity, whether on the basis of acknowledging past crimes or not acknowledging them, but a degree of amnesty might be a better word, sometimes applies to those who committed crimes 
during a civil conflict is because it's understood that to maintain peace and whatever the new settlement is, you need the cooperation of those who you would otherwise in a different world be trying to hold accountable and then dispense punishment yeah. to. In Guatemala, like, is it the case that there is a sizable constituency of people who if you start jailing um, past leaders for war crimes effectively here, they're, they're going to want to tear the whole settlement down? Or is that, is that moment past? And it's, it's more just about um, like people's uh, desire to not get into it for other reasons. I think that uh, it, it's important to remember that the first Rios Mont ruling, so in, in 2013 when he was first... Um, convicted for genocide and crimes against humanity. That was the first time that a former head of state was found guilty in their own state mm. of genocide. And it was a huge moment, right? So it signalled a particular will. Um, and there were other cases. There's Last year, or 2016, there was a case um, of sexual slavery and against people for people who had been disappeared, this was also um, in Guatemala. Yeah, in Guatemala. So landmark cases, landmark human rights cases that had global implications have taken place in Guatemala. What is um, what what? So what's happened subsequently is that the Constitutional Court overturned it. So it's not only about kind of large actors protecting their own and the idea of amnesty being important to keep the state functioning. It's a state that isn't particularly well-functioning and people protecting their fiefdoms, actually. So when it comes to those who are affected by these past crimes and who, I suppose, would be the intended beneficiaries of any justice um, uh, bestowing project now... Uh, what are the stakes for them? Like, is this just about the sense of validation that comes from having it finally acknowledged that crimes were committed and here's what those crimes were and having it stipulated on the record? Uh, is there an issue of material compensation for those who suffered? So that's at stake. Um, like what, uh, what does it really mean to give justice to those who are wronged in these sorts of contexts? And what do their priorities tend to be? Because you, you interact uh, as part of your research a lot with people who one way or another have been on the wrong end of um, terrible actions by, by uh, one side or other in, in a civil war. What tends to be their, their most desired outcome from uh, a justice-oriented uh, effort? I think what's interesting and what we don't really talk about in our field is that justice doesn't mean the same thing for most victims and survivors and the families of, the, of victims. Um, it can mean seeing the perpetrator behind bars and that perpetrator could be the person who did the harm or it could be like Rios Mont, the person who orchestrated those crimes. It could be sending your kid, having the money to send your kids to university or to secondary school or to primary school. It could be psycho psychosocial support, right? It could be so this idea of reparation that you're you're pointing to is important, and the idea of prosecution to some but not all is important. And then you get cases like, for example, 
frozen cases like Cyprus, where families of the disappeared say that what is most important is not criminal prosecutions, but the peace process, so coming Mm. to peace. So families of the disappeared in Cyprus, not all, but many of them will say, we're willing not to prosecute so long as we... um, we move towards peace so long as we have peace and we're afraid that uncovering the past will destabilize the peace process. But that's also a pretty sad route to go down when families of those who have been um, taken are sacrificing their own kind of immediate desires for the sake of the country's well-being. Mm-hmm. Well, I can imagine there's a certain virtue to the explicitness of it in the sense that if you have at least got acknowledgement of yeah. what happened and what people have endured, yeah. then, and, you know, it is accepted that they then have a role in accepting or not accepting yeah. what, whatever comes next. I can imagine that that, that carrying some weight. Whereas in, in a case like Kosovo, for yeah. example, it seems like there's a degree of, like, People must endure a degree of gaslighting, in effect, where there is there is a denial that events that yeah. happened that, that are the most traumatic and significant events that will ever befall people in their entire lives yeah. uh, actually like happened at all. Yeah. And th- in a case like that, it's complicated by the fact that I suppose you have, you know, you have a, a, a an independent struggle uh, that happens against the odds and yeah. is successful and has its origins in many ways in the fact that there is a uh, an aggrieved minority that feels oppressed but in the course of winning their victory like they become a majority of sorts on their own turf and do a bunch of uh, terrible things but because the um, the end result is that you have a state controlled by the victors uh, who get to write the history, like you have a heroic narrative of success against the odds and uh, resisting oppression that has no place for acknowledging yeah. that maybe some terrible things were done also by those on the side of the victors and that maybe it's more complicated than a kind of black hat, white hat uh, story, which... As long as at least the first generation, I would assume, of people who were who were involved in the leadership of that effort are are in place, there's just no political will at all to go like disrupting or, or disentangling that. Right, which is why, which is why the the establishment of the tribunal is so controversial. Um, I'm I'm, I'm impressed that it got established at all. Well, like, I would have assumed that those currently in charge of Kosovo would just go like, well, this is going to come to our door pretty fast, so we should like not want it to happen. At yeah, all. it's not. It's I mean, it, it wasn't. It happened because there was tremendous pressure on on um, Kosovo's leadership from the international community, who kept saying, "Hey guys, hey hey, this stuff happened. You're going to have to look at this. Hey, what about this? Hey, what about this? Hey, guess what? We're not going to continue funding you if you don't look at mm-hmm. this." So they were kind of trapped in that regard, and it was. And so you see the political rhetoric among parts of the um, leadership. Alliance saying we do need to look at our past. There's kind of this grudging acknowledgement that um, that the KLA did some stuff, capital S, capital S, mm. um, and they might need to address that. But among that quarter, there's a feeling that maybe we can kind of do it quickly, do it quietly, and and let it go. And then there is the vociferous opposition. Yeah. Um, so there's no there's no real constituency or not much of one within uh, the 
ethnic Albanian Kosovo population for like let's let's have truth no. and reconciliation that admits that we did some stuff. There's like people who are super nationalistic, refuse to acknowledge it happened. Yeah. There's people who on some level probably acknowledge it happened but have no interest in looking into yeah. it. And then there's outsiders who would really like a full uh, accounting. And and don't forget that it's part of the Balkans conflicts, right? So you also have Serbia on the sidelines uh, sidelines saying, yeah, absolutely bring that on mm-hmm. because we were pounded by the International Criminal Tribunal for the former Yugoslavia. Right. Uh, and like they, in, in, a, in a complex, multi-fronted conflict in which all sorts of terrible things happened, they have ended up as the, you know, the unambiguous yeah. black hats in, yeah. in most people's recollection of what went on. But thoroughly merited, I should say, in many ways. But nevertheless, uh, you know, if there is a... If, if there is a totally false binary that implies no one else did anything wrong yeah. ever, one can see why they would, they, would, they would find that grating. And I think that that's one of the problems with tribunals like this, that it tends to land in already very deeply divided waters. Um, so it often doesn't have the tools to be able to depolarize a situation in fact it escalates that polarization which is what people are worried about with Kosovo that look at the context it's really fragile the government is is skating on pretty thin ice um stability is uncertain institutional reform has been hard fought but slow so there's a risk of kind of undermining all of this by uncovering the past, right? On the other hand, you have this papering over the past. Um, th- that means that it does come up over and over again, and it's not—it's unstable f- mm. for very, very good reasons. Yeah, and I guess like because people have um, these. You know, that there are there are relatively few people in the world who have a truly dispassionate universalistic commitment yeah. to the absolute respect of human rights much 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 more often what you find is you have people who have a particular narrative in which they are the aggrieved party yeah. which can be framed in those terms yeah. but uh, when there are those who have an alternative narrative in which the polarity is flipped, yeah. in which the good guys and the bad guys are reversed, their commitment to the same absolute principles gets a lot, a lot, a lot shakier. So the exact same actions carried out by one group of people yeah. need to be thoroughly investigated and punished. Uh, and in another case, the you know bad, terrible things happen at sea. Let's not, let's not like pick that scab. Tends to be the response. So it, it just underlines that. In some ways, in terms of the like the the basic nature of political man and woman and political entities like states, we're really it's a big lift to get societies and individuals to look clear eyed at the fact that bad things happen on both sides and should be treated with some degree of equality and even handedness right yeah no um I think that. Yes, people are unwilling to look in their own backyard um, when it's not in their interest. But I also think that mechanisms like international tribunals or these kind of tribunals have been set up in such a way to walk completely into those divisions. So, So my beef isn't so much with, or my question isn't so much about, is this a problem of human nature and will we always go down this path and what then? But if we begin from the principle that 
uh, I hesitate to use the word confronting, but let's say looking at atrocities of the past or what we in communities of conflict have done to each other, if we begin from the premise that that is important because without that, a society continues to be destabilised, um, then the question that you have to ask is how do you do that work in a way that doesn't further divide or cause cause tension and lead to more conflict, right? So what was interesting to me when I was looking at this Kosovo tribunal is that the advice being given when the tribunal was established was very much in the vein of, well, we don't want to go down the same route as the ICTY, the, the tribunal for the former Yugoslavia, which contributed to division and why did it contribute to division um people who put these programs together say that it contributed to division because there was no outreach strategy among all of the the communities particularly in say bosnia um because there was no public dialogue because the media was so nationalistic from the outset and so the tribunal didn't help and these kind of self-flagellating things that happen and so or that 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 they reflect on as the failures of previous big tribunals and so the the advice for this one was so let's not do that again right but the problem is you have a divided context you have a fragile state and you have a new tribunal that's looking at atrocities committed only by one side and then you talk about well we need to make sure we do outreach right and we need to make sure that we get the media on side and and all of these kind of things which were which are important but in some ways also banal so the question then is what do you do with all of that? And and it's an open question. I mean, are these big criminal prosecutions programs the way to go? Or do we need to rethink not just what is justice and oriented around what really what victims and survivors want, which may be prosecutions and may be prosecutions with other things or those other things, acknowledgement, like you say, or uh, reparation, or I don't know. But... How do you do the work of justice in its various guises without f- further disrupting or further polarizing to to a kind of um, to the extent of political violence? I think we've set the world to rights. Thank you very much. You can follow the Political Worldview podcast on Twitter at Poor Worldview, and please do. Please also, at least as important, subscribe to us on SoundCloud or iTunes. And you can leave us a rating or a comment on iTunes as well, which uh, helps others discover the pod, uh, helps us get higher up rankings, etc. Really, really appreciate it if you do that. If you share us on social media, recommend people listen. That, that would be awesome. I would consider it a personal favor to me. Uh, and uh, I will send you a very nice note if you send me a note saying that saying that you did that um, to thank you for it. Uh, you can also come and like our show page on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash poll worldview, where you can see links to episodes, uh, sometimes articles that we're reading, other things that uh, the various co-hosts are doing, etc. Um, one of our co-hosts today, Scott Lucas, has already fled the building, uh, so I'll simply have to refer you to, uh, to Google to locate his online presence. But Kristala is still with us, and so you can self-promote with, uh, uh, with enthusiasm. 
Well, where, are the people, where can people find you if they're looking for you, Christelle? You can find me on Twitter at, at Yukinthu. How would you spell that you if spell you were so inclined? Y-A-K-I-N-T-H-O-U. Adam, that makes me sad. <laughs> what, that I don't know how to spell it? I know how to spell it. <laughs> I just didn't want to steal your voice my uh, by, uh, by, by saying it uh, on your behalf. I look forward I'm, to I'm, I'm inhabiting the character of, uh, of an ignorant but interested listener <laughs> who, was in, who was desperately wanting to look you up on Twitter but was unsure what letters they needed to, to accomplish the task. All of the letters in the alphabet, more or less. My parents guaranteed that. Yes, you are well catered to on the vowel front. That much, that much is for sure. I'm Adam Quinn, uh, Adam Quinn, uh, 161 on Facebook. If you want to go looking for me there, um, I'm also standing next to Lyndon Johnson in the photograph, which might be helpful to you. Uh, I'm on Twitter at Adam James Quinn, although I use that less often. So I would say Facebook's probably the better bet. Our producer is Connor McKenna, and you've been listening to us from the Political Science and International Studies Department at the University of Birmingham in England. Thanks very much, as always, to the Pulsus Good Ideas Fund for their financial support for this podcast, which is very much appreciated. We'll be back soon. Uh, very glad to be back with you in this uh, new year, and we very much much hope you will be with us again soon too. Bye. Bye.